Like you said, my name is Rome. Some of you I know, some of you I'm yet to meet. Um, for those of you that did come this morning, thank you so much for the others like my mom who decided not to show up and go on a women's retreat. That's okay too. Um, so I gotta set up my little notes here first, so give me a second. Talk amongst yourselves. You guys are doing great, I love the murmuring. someone mentioned my stickers all right so I am back um, for summer just the month of May actually because that's how much of a summer I get um, and I came back and I was told that there were opportunities to preach because rich was rich was out of town and I said great what are we what are we talking about what's our sermon series um, and apparently it's called better than I could ever imagine and there's a lot of things that are better than I could imagine <laughs> so I had to Go out and pick one. So in thinking about things that are better than I could ever imagine in the church context, God is very holy. That is better than I could imagine. He is good. He is faithful. He is just. He is gentle. He is tender. He is kind. There's a million things to pick from. But what I decided to do was to pick the thing that I understood least about God and then talk about that. So I'm not qualified in any way, shape, or form, and we're going to struggle through this together. Today we're going to be talking about God's glory. And our passage today comes from 1 Corinthians 13. Paul is speaking on love, and he says, But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see darkly, only as a reflection in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And so this part that I want to keep talking about today is this idea that we see darkly, that we don't understand, that there are things that we are unable to imagine. And so something that I found really interesting about the end of this passage here is that right now we know God in part. We see reflections of him, but we don't know it. But even so, God knows us fully, which is such a relief to me to say that I cannot understand God. And the Bible itself tries to articulate this idea and this image and this personhood of God in a million ways, with names such as God, Yahweh, Jehovah, Elohim, El Shaddai, Adonai, the God who sees. There are a million ways to refer to him. He who knit me together in my mother's womb. He who came and died on a cross and was nailed there by ants, nailed on a tree that he made. He is so great and so grand and so glorious I don't really get what glory is. How do, we, how do we use it? I remember when the Seahawks won the Super Bowl once. One time. One time. And it was glorious. It was triumphant. It was victorious. And that was glorious. And when we do a good job at something, we as Christians get the opportunity to say, whoa, whoa, glory to God. Glory to God. So what does that mean? So looking at the Hebrew, yeah, we're going there. I'm going to a Bible college, so we're going to talk about the original words. So when the psalmist says the heavens declare the glory of God, the word is kabod, which means honor, abundance, splendor, and ascribing reputation or reverence. Turning to Greek in the New Testament, the word is doxa, which means a literal brilliance that radiates from God's presence and also ascribes the highest status possible to God. So there's two main categorizations of glory here. That first one is status and praise, and that second one is light. And so the biggest question that I want to answer right now is 
why does it matter? Why does it matter that we should try and understand glory? Well, the New Testament says that we will be given God's glory, that this is something for us to look forward to, that this is something that has been offered to us. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as the Lord the Spirit. And Jesus says in John 17.22, The glory which you have given me, I have given to them. That's us that they may be one, even as we are one. So we're being given glory. We're being given that first category of credit and praise, and that second one of brilliant light. And so to help me kind of sort through this today, um, I used C.S. Lewis's Weight of Glory, which is an essay he wrote in the 1940s about trying to contextualize what glory is and how we understand it, because I'm not smart enough to figure it out on my own. And so he categorizes these things, firstly, as fame, and that's that credit and that praise. And the second one is radiance, and that's that splendor. But fame doesn't make a lot of sense at first, because fame inherently means being better known than others. And that doesn't seem like a very Christian pursuit. My goal is just to be better known than you. Paul, in 1 Thessalonians, instructs the church to endeavor to lead a quiet life. Jesus describes himself as gentle and lowly. These are not ways of being big and important and famous, but rather ways that are small and insignificant. And so in looking at this, what Lewis does in his essay is he considers Matthew 18.3, where Jesus tells the disciples that unless they become like a little child, they will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And what is more obvious in a little kid than their desire to be praised? For them to do something and to look to their parents and say, look at me, did, did I do good? Did I do well? And the problem with this, as we know, is children are just selfish little monsters. I'm glad they left so they can't hear me saying that. But there was a time, a short time, before we drank the poison of self-admiration that we just wanted to be rightly praised by those that we rightly loved and rightly feared. The quote from Lewis here is that when we are given glory, there will be no room for vanity. When the redeemed soul learns at last that she has pleased him whom she was created to please, free from the miserable illusion that it is her own doing. So is glory nothing more than a high five from God? Well done. You did it. Here's a pat on the back. If glory is fame, it's not about the idea of we're above others. It's about being known by God. It's about having appreciation and approval from God. And that is worth everything. And think about it this way, is when Jesus talks about the parable of the talents, this is where a manager sends his servants to go and invest their money. And he leaves for a time, and the servants accrue gain from the money, and he comes back. And when the master returns, the one that has brought back the most return, the master says to him, well done, my good and faithful servant. God is praising him who ought to be rightly praised. It is not about how much better that servant did than other servants. It is about that that, ser is it that the servant did well with what God had given him. And so Lewis says, in the end, the face, which is the delight or terror of the universe, must be turned on each of us, either with one expression or the other, either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. For the promise of glory is the promise almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ that some of us, that any who really choose, shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God. And to please God is to be loved by him, to be delighted in by him, 
to be approved of and appreciated and not merely pitied. And this is the weight of glory that C.S. Lewis says our thoughts can barely sustain. This is the first idea, right, of fame. Fame with God that is worth more than anything else. Well done, my good and faithful servant. And the second meaning of glory is that of radiant light. So we get to heaven, and we all become Christmas trees. We just glow. It's weird. It's weird. So Lewis talks about this as not just being a literal glowing, but rather the idea that we are being given splendor and beauty. And so instead of being removed from God, which is a source of beauty, right? We, can we agree on that? Source of beauty and light and life. Instead of being removed from him, we are now brought close. What more, we are given his beauty and his splendor. Right now, we experience beauty and splendor at a thousand removes from God. What I mean from that is how we all live today. Is we need food, water, air, and we were given life by, through a long series of ancestors, right? And so our you know, fathers and mothers did not come from God. They came from a father and mother, and a father and mother, and so on and so forth to Adam. A million, a thousand removes from God. The air we breathe, the food we eat, the water we drink, is not life itself. It is made by God. It is recycled nutrients and matter that we take in and are given life by. What will it be like when we drink from the fountain of joy and beauty itself, no longer removed and no longer enjoying little bits and pieces and mirrored reflections of that beauty? Lewis comes in here and he says that we ought to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person, he was writing about my dad, the dullest and most uninteresting person <laughs> that you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, at, if at all, only in a nightmare. Essentially, God will either give us all the glory and the beauty and the splendor and the light of himself and that life or all the glory and the light and the life will be taken back by its originator and so these these are both metaphors right we are understanding this in terms of of light and life and is that what it is actually to be filled with beauty i haven't seen beauty i've only seen darkly as though in a mirror i have not seen it for what it is in and of itself and so a metaphor that Lewis uses here to understand the weight of glory or the goodness of glory as something that is so beyond our understanding and yet such a high good is the idea of Greek poetry, okay? And I know you guys love Greek poetry. So in this metaphor, all right, Greek poetry is the highest form of all poetries, okay? English poetry cannot compare. French poetry cannot compare. Nothing compares. Whether it does or does not is not the point. For the sake of the metaphor, Greek poetry is the best. The problem is that none of us speak Greek. So in order to enjoy that poetry, we have to first learn Greek. And learning Greek is hard. It is difficult. It is not a joy or a pleasure in and of itself. But if it is done, then we get to experience the joy of Greek poetry. And the thing is, is we're faced with a choice here. Is we can either endeavor to do the work of learning Greek, or we can choose to read English poetry or French poetry or any other form of poetry. And this is, of course, a metaphor for glory is the highest possible joy and pleasure or the other pleasures that we are offered. So we can either follow Christ, and this means rejecting sin and turning from it and all these pleasures that we are offered, and they are pleasures, but they are only shadows of glory, of the greatest pleasure. But in seeking the greatest pleasure, it is hard, and it is not pleasurable in and of itself. In fact, it is beyond what we can imagine. 
So to double down on this and help us understand it better, we're going to talk about Greek poetry. We're also going to talk about The Truman Show. Have any of you watched it? It's an old movie at this point with Jim Carrey who plays Truman, okay? And he's an insurance salesman who finds out that his entire life is actually just the set of a reality TV show. Okay, have any of you had that experience? Okay, just one. <laughs> and so once he finds out that his world isn't real, the rest of the movie is him spent trying to decide whether or not he will leave the TV show and go into the real world. And it ends with him finally doing so. And the concept of the Truman Show comes from Greek literature. Yeah, we're going there with Plato's allegory of the cave. So I'm going to explain this, and we're going to understand it perfectly, and then we're going to go from there. Sound good? So in this allegory of the cave, I need you guys to imagine with me that there is a cave. And the cave has two levels. And at this lower level are people that have been chained to a wall. And all that they can see and experience in the world is a wall in front of them. Lucky for them, it's not just black darkness because there's light being cast on that wall by a fire that's on the level above. Okay, so chained on the level below, fire on the level above. And people will pass between that fire and the far wall, which then casts shadows onto the wall that the people below see. So people below see the shadows. The thing is, is because those shadows are the only things they've ever experienced in their entire lives, they believe that that is all that there is to reality. They do not know that the shadows are two-dimensional, untouchable, colorless versions of the real thing. And Plato theorizes that if somebody could escape from the bottom, this is like Truman when he decides to leave the show, if they can escape from the bottom and go out up to the second level and then out to the surface, they would see the sun. And the sun would be beyond anything they could have imagined after a life of only shadows. And the sun, because it's philosophy, represents truth and reality. And so we're going to do a little exercise. So I need everybody stand up. Everybody stand up. Okay. Great. Have you all played charades? No? Nobody's played charades? Okay, okay. I need, I need one volunteer. One brave volunteer. Okay, thank you so much, Dante. Okay, so I need you to come on right up here. Everybody say hi, Dante. And I need you to face them. They are the wall. And I'm going to be casting light on it. So they're going to act out something, and I need you to guess what it is, okay? Yeah, that's right. We come to church, we play charades. It's fun. All right. I need you to act out this, okay, everybody? I need, guys, what is this? Now act it out. Like how, okay. Okay. Keep, keep guessing, Dante. We got tears, sad. Okay, it's, it's an object, it's an object, Dante. Tissues? Okay, all right, okay, now describe them to me. Okay, um, what color are they? Okay, all right, um, how, how many ply is this facial tissue? Two ply, is it Kleenex brand? Does Dante know what he's talking about? <laughs> <laughs> okay, you can sit down, Dante. So, do you see how he tried to, this is what it was, Dante. It was Livy brand, can you believe it? Livy, I don't even know what that is. And so just as Dante could guess from what you guys did, and he, he already had an idea of what Kleenex was, an idea of what it was used for, 
but he could not describe to me its shape, its color, its brand, anything of the words on it. It was just a shadow of the real thing. And so Plato says if somebody can escape from the cave and make it to reality, they're then faced with a choice. Because they've seen something that they cannot comprehend, and they can either return to their cave, stay in the sun, or they can go back to the cave to liberate the people that are there and to bring them to the sun. And Plato, because he's a philosopher and believed that they could see the truth, believed that it was their job to bring people to the sun and to light and to truth and reality. So the inability to know reality is the same as our inability to know glory. For now we see darkly, only as a reflection in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Think of that reflection in a mirror, a shadow on a wall. We do not know what it is, and we cannot comprehend it. Fortunately, it's not about how much truth and how much sun that we can see and glimpse in the world that determines how much glory we can experience. It's irrelevant how much we know about God. Rather, it's about how much God knows us. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 22, Many will say to him on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then he will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So isn't it a relief that God doesn't expect us to know him? If all we can know is shadows of God, we would be trapped. We would, that would be that. There would be no way to reach God. Luckily, there's Jesus who brings us to the light. And so it's important to note that the allegory of the cave is not a perfect metaphor for God and the gospel. On one hand, Christ, have seen the sun. S-U-N and S-O-N. It's a great pun. It's going to be used more later. But we have seen the sun. We have seen truth and light and beauty. But at the same time, we see darkly. We only see shadows cast on the walls of the world. So what are the shadows that are cast on our walls? What are the pleasures that we are given that are only shadows of glory? Going back to C.S. Lewis, he distills them into three main categories. Drink, sex, and ambition. Yeah, I said sex in church. So he says, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the, reward, of the rewards promised in the Gospels, if we consider glory, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because they cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We would rather read our English poetry than our Greek poetry. We would rather do that than have to learn the Greek. We would rather enjoy our pleasures here rather than seeking after something that is so great that we cannot comprehend it. And just in the same way as Lewis is talking about this slum and the seaside, it's the same thing as this cave and the sun. So what are these pleasures that we settle for? Pleasure one, drink. One in eight adults in the U.S. qualifies as an alcoholic. That's probably four of you in this room, I'm sorry to say. Dad. <laughs> that was a joke. But statistically, that's four of us right here. The CDC says that 12% of Americans smoke. 41% of adults are obese, 10% severely so. And even if these are vices, Rome, you say, they're not necessarily sins. It's true. But why settle for that pleasure? Pleasure two, sex. 25% of all internet searches are for porn. The average age of exposure is eight years old. And 35% of US pastors are addicted. 
breasts is compared to 90% of U.S. men and 60% of U.S. women. My source there is fight the new drug. And while our culture says it may not be harmful, it's natural, porn use in marriage doubles the rates of divorce and it's the third most common form of sex trafficking, of, of all human trafficking. It hurts way more people than just those that are caught in cycles of depression and addiction and anxiety. We settle for this pleasure. We grasp onto it. And it's often purported as the highest good in society. What is marriage in the church? It's the highest thing we can uh, attain, isn't it? But it's just a shadow of the real thing. Pleasure three, ambition. 90% of Americans define success as happiness, which would be fine, but only 33% of Americans report being happy. And I don't know if I can say that I'm one of those Americans all the time. I don't know if you can either. If happiness is what our success is contingent upon, then I think we're all in a lot of trouble. On top of that, the World Economic Forum found that Americans consider making it as having an income of $147,000 a year, which is five times the average income for residents of Whatcom County. I don't make that either, just so we're clear. Next, if we've already talked about wealth, if we've talked about happiness, what about fame? 80% of Americans between ages 13 and 18, you teens out there, want to become a social media influencer, which makes sense because fame is considered a cure-all for poverty, neglect, and rejection among other social issues. We can chase after that. But what about the one that all of us are probably just, just as guilty of? Busyness. 72% of Americans are always or sometimes too busy to enjoy life, according to Pew. But that's no surprise. The University of Chicago found that Americans prefer at the expense of productivity because of a pervasive fear of idleness. We would rather be busy than happy, busy than productive, busy than at peace, busy than enjoying life. We put our ambition before our well-being. We put our ambition before other people. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition. We accept these shadows of joy as the real thing. And so there's one last part to the allegory of the cave. Plato says that people who have seen the sun, that have managed to glimpse truth and reality and beauty, cannot be understood by those that have not. And this wasn't mere philosophizing for Plato, despite him being a philosopher. This is because his mentor and teacher, Socrates, was killed by democratic election after being charged with perverting the youth by talking about philosophy. Plato believed that Socrates had seen the sun and as such, he was too dangerous to be left alive by society. And it's no different with the gospel. In Mark 12, Jesus tells the parable of the tenants. And in this story, Jesus talks about a master who builds a vineyard. And he rents it out to tenants, and at harvest time, he sends servants to collect his share of what he is owed from the harvest. The thing is, is every time that the master sends a servant to go and get his share of the harvest, the tenants kill them. And this happens time and time again. Until finally the master says, I will send my son this time. Surely they will respect him. But as the son was still a ways off, the tenants looked to each other and said, Come, let us kill him and take the inheritance for ourselves. In this parable, the servants represent the prophets that God sent to Israel, who were killed time and time again for telling people, telling Israel God's chosen nation is special and precious possession, the truth for holding them accountable to God. And God sent his son, who is the son in the parable, and the son of God, Jesus. And we humans killed him too. 
So if they were killed for seeing the sun, the prophets had seen the sun, they'd seen God, and if God the sun, it's another pun, S-U-N and S-O-N, and if God the sun had also come and was killed, then what does that mean for Christians today? It's set a historical precedent, and it's surely no different. Open Doors, a nonprofit organization that reports on persecution worldwide, found that one in seven Christians in the world faces extreme persecution. 16 Christians are recorded to be killed globally every day. Afghanistan, right now, is the number one most dangerous nation where Christians are being systematically hunted by the Taliban. This is, of course, unfortunate for North Korea, which has held the number one spot for 30 years and holds 500 to 700,000 Christians in labor camps because of their faith. And even in these very atheist and Muslim countries where Christianity is in no way a societal norm, in 2021, 80% of all recorded Christian martyrs came from Nigeria, a country which is 49% Christian. It does not matter if we are in the majority, if we have a hold in the culture. We can be hunted, we can be killed, we have seen the sun, we cannot live, we cannot communicate with the rest of the world. Luckily in the West, we're not killed though. We're just madmen. Q Ideas, a polling research firm, found that 61% of American millennials consider Christians to be confusing, 78% consider us to be old-fashioned, and 75% consider us to be out of touch with reality. We're not killed, but we're madmen. And if this really is a Christian nation, then it's a nation of maniacs. So in the end, we are faced with a choice. We can either pursue glory and by the work of Jesus Christ come to the face of God, or we can pursue the pleasures that we are given, which as we established are shadows on the wall of a cave. We can choose our chains at the bottom of that cave, or we can choose the sun. We can choose our mud pies in the slums, or we can choose the seaside. We can choose the perfectly imaginable pleasures of the world or the unimaginable weight of glory. The thing is, is if we choose to pursue the sun, it costs everything. Paul in Galatians 2 says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It costs everything. But what if it's worth everything? What if our desires are not too strong, but too weak? For now we see darkly, only as a reflection in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And guys, won't it be amazing to know fully and to see God, to see beauty and life and truth, to see him face to face? So I end with a quote from Lewis here, who says that glory is welcome into the heart of all things. The door on which we have been knocking all our lives will finally be open. And that is better than I could ever imagine. I'm going to invite the band up. I'll pray for us. Jesus, thank you for each and every person in this room today. Thank you that you have created us to be vessels of your glory and your light and your life. I pray that you would press on our hearts the reality that we are either pressing on to become vessels filled with your glory or vessels where all of your glory is taken away. That the most dulling and uninteresting, most dull and uninteresting person we have ever met and could ever imagine is so beloved by you 
that you would show them your face and your light and your love. Help us not to accept the shadows of glory that are cast on this world, Lord, but to instead do the work of learning Greek, to do the work of being crucified after you, of dying daily, of taking up our cross and following you, Jesus, not because it is even right or true, while it is those things, God, but you say it is worth it. If you are the Son, God, let us pursue the Son and leave our chains behind. Break us free and bring us into a new day and help us to love our neighbor and to take them with us, Lord, to a place where glory unexpressible rains down on us and where every tear will be wiped away and that everything in this world, God, that was a pleasure will be seen as a laughable joke, a slum compared to the seaside that we've been invited into. Thank you, Lord, that that is what you have prepared for us. That is what you came and you suffered and you died to give us and you would do again a thousand a hundred thousand, a million times. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your light. Thank you for your beauty and your life and the opportunity to one day be given approval and appreciation from you that we could be said, well done, my good and faithful servant. Lord, make us in this congregation, in this place, in this time, Lord, make us your faithful servants. To the glory of your name, Jesus Christ.